Welcome to Trowadron Legends and Lore. Episode 30, Valora. Well, hello and welcome to Trollodon Legends and Lore. I'm Chad Corey, and I'm looking forward to explaining more about the cultic side of the Trollodon pantheon or the Trollodon cosmology. We're going to do a little bit different thing today. I know I previously mentioned going into doing a double time here as far as back-to-back information on characters and such. For this particular episode, though, we have kind of someone that's more, I guess, has more information, more things going on, and so I wanted to share a little bit more time with them, with Valora, and get a little more deep delve in it because she'll be playing more of an important role in upcoming uh, stories, developments, storylines, aspects of the cosmology, if you will, become more of a major player and shaker, and so I wanted to introduce her properly and get her involved with... uh, some basic information we can use that will help you get a feel for who she is and what she's about as we move into, not just with this podcast, but also, like I said, future stories and things in general. So going to be sharing a little bit more spoiler-free, or I should say spoilish type of things than I usually do, but I think it's warranted and worthwhile because I want to introduce, like I said, more aspects of some things that will be more important in the future. So let's take a look at Valora. Who is she? Well, first of all, she is the first greater godspawn. And I think at this point, the only greater godspawn in the Trolodon pantheon. And what is a godspawn? Again, we introduced that last episode with uh, Sidra and Shador. But in general, the godspawn is a blending of a d- the god or divinity with a non-divinity or lesser divinity. The godspawn, the greater godspawn in this case, would be a direct uh, pairing of a god and a divinity. Now, divinity, for the most part, again, I'm just simplifying it here, is a titan lord. And there are some, you know, there are occasionally some things that rise to that higher level of of divinity as well. But for all intents and purposes for this thing, it's uh, a titan lord. And in this case, we have her father being Cuthon and her mother being a lady of evil. So already you can see an interesting pairing that can develop out of that... uh, unique parentage. But because of that relationship she has, she is the sister of Proloza and Remanas, and she is the cousin of Shiril, Casilla, and Andarian. Now, she has a unique history in that her father, Cuthon, who has a history of siring God's bonds, shall we say, and maybe we'll get into that in, uh, in future episodes down the way, he went on one of his little excursions at some point in time in the past and found himself enjoying the company of a lady of evil. Now, we don't necessarily... Oh, I, I should... I take it back. And this lady uh, of evil named Analara, who we don't really know a lot about. She doesn't really mention too much in the Theogono or the Cosma or any other real forms of historical timekeeping. And maybe that's due to the fact that, you know, they don't want to have his indiscretion be broadcast so detailed, shall we say. But in either extent, whatever the case, I should say, she was born uh, through their relationship. And true to form with Cuthon, he didn't really want to have much to do with the Godspawn. This was actually his first 
infidelity, although it wouldn't be his last, and it caused a lot of issues with his wife and family, as you can understand, and to a greater extent with the Pantheon in general. So he found himself having to face this choice of, okay, I don't really want to deal with the outcome or the situation. And so he basically disowned his child, disowned Anna Lara, and kind of tried to sweep it under the rug and forgot it, you know, try to make it seem like it never happened. That might work if the people were mortal and you could kind of say they disappear, but you're dealing with divinities and gods here, and even if they die, their spirits are eternal, and so they are always around, <laughs> and so they always exist, which could be a constant source plot, as you can imagine, as the millennia wore on. But what it made it more challenging was he had this daughter, and he didn't know, He obviously he didn't want to have any involvement with the birth. He didn't really know that he had a daughter, he, he knew that there was a child, but he didn't take an interest in finding out if it was male or female, didn't really have an interest in wanting to know what came of that. Instead, he just said, hey, we're done. I'm done with you. We're done. We're, you know, wiping my hands, basically, and leaving Anna Laura to basically raise a child on her own. She named her Valora, and Valora grew up, obviously, with a very large chip or block or mountain on her shoulders because, on one hand, she realized she wasn't really a lord of darkness, actually a lord of evil. And on the other hand, she realized she was kind of something more than that, but she would never be more than what she was. She always would be kept outside of the pantheon. She would never be acknowledged as her father's daughter. She would never be fully acknowledged or accepted by her mother or the rest of the lords of evil because she was something outside of them. So she was always this consummate outsider and this never fitting in type of thing and she just grew up hating everything and hating everyone really having a, a deep dislike and hatred for her father and just that translated into the the larger gods as well where she felt not only cheated and uh, denied her proper right but just despised them for for what they they put her through because in her mind and i guess there might have been some some truth to that they had to know she existed they had to know that she had you know a life somewhere in the abyss, but they chose just to kind of, like like I said, cut her out of their lives and, and, and keep her in this, this plane of torture and torment and stuff and not not let her come to her full potential. And so her, her whole beef, her whole stick, for the longest part of her existence, was trying to find her place, trying to establish herself as a legitimate god on the Pantheon. She wanted to become a god. Because she felt that, hey, I am, I'm almost there. I'm a greater Godspot. I'm almost, you know, I'm just like a step away from it. Why can't I be acknowledged as such? Why can't I have all the privileges and access and things that a proper goddess would have? On the same token, she was stuck in this, you know, the prison plane, basically. Although she wasn't a prisoner of it. Although you can argue maybe she thought she was. Because she couldn't really leave there. Because once you die, what she did do at some point, obviously, when she died... Your spirit ties into the plane you're most likely to, you know, be aligned with. And obviously, being a lady of darkness, she basically stayed on <laughs> this plane. So she's kind of stuck there. She can't leave it now. And so she's doubly frustrated, feeling that she totally, you know, doesn't get to live her life like she wants to on her own terms. And so she's in this constant state of anger and, and rage against all these forces and things. And it's not a very good life that she finds herself living. She does have a, a, a title we can share at this point, which is Princess of the Pit. That's what she strives to be. Basically, if she can't be 
a goddess in the pantheon, she'll try and rule and reign as a goddess of the abyss. And that's what she was able to achieve in not so many years from now. And again, I say that by the time of 753, uh, which is the current time of this recording for the planet of Trilodon, which is we just saw the wrapping up of the Wizard King trilogy, by the around the year 800 or so, she will have achieved her goal of becoming the ruler of the abyss, finding herself aligned with uh, someone else, shall we say. I'm not going to share that information yet. That's kind of a secret thing. But she's able to empower herself and rise up to the level where she wanted to be, not only as ruler of the abyss, but actually more or less a goddess of evil. So she's finally able to achieve her ends, but it's going to take several millennia to get to that point where she's able to finally do so. And that's where she becomes known as the goddess of evil and known as the princess of the pit. So let's delve into a little bit of that. People that worship her around that time are called Valorans. And uh, they have kind of this weird perception. I don't want to say weird, I guess. It has a cultic belief system on some levels because it's not really a, a formally recognized religion, although she is a goddess. It's kind of similar to like, you know, Girthgall and other gods where in Astrolog where they're, they're acknowledged as gods, but people don't, it's not a very happy, <laughs> happy religion. Yeah, let's worship evil. It's not something that people necessarily gravitate towards in, in mass. Obviously, some people do, but it's not something that, you know, the first thing people think of when they think of a god, I want to have a god for my life or a philosophy that governs my, my existence. I'll choose evil. It's like, it's not necessarily the first thing people go to. But her followers tend to be those who are young, who look to rebel against those in authority, who seek the right and moral way of the world, uh, the, you know, their parents or other uh, establishment figures. Uh, this is more or less the darker nature of the world. Uh, this would-be goddess is also attracts the less than wholesome members of society, shall we say. Uh, those on the fringes uh, for various reasons, and they look to tap into the cosmos for their own ends. Uh, basically, the lawless, the, she presents what, we, what I call the beautiful face of evil in the sense that, oh, you know, hey, it's, it's, you know, it's not just, it's not evil, it's not terrible, it's not wicked, whatever, corrupted, destructive. It's just, yeah, you want your own thing. You just, you want to rebel, you want to go your own way, you want to go against the established morality or morals of the, of the world. Hey, I get you, I did the same thing myself, look what I achieved, that kind of thing. Of course, what she doesn't tell you is ultimately the path of evil is going to be destructive and, you know, disruptive and just really toxic and terrible in the long run as it eats and destroys into the people that follow it and propagate it and people that they interact with. But, you know, that, like true evil doesn't really tell you that in the beginning. Uh, she doesn't really have any holy text or anything. She just entices her followers, you know, saying she's this true liberator, like I, like I said, and being able to take people, free people from what bound them, what's buying them in the past, she offers them freedom to explore explore their true passions of their person. She's not only a liberator, but a guide to reveal how you can tap into the freedom of greater things to come. Again, she presents herself as this great savior of, you know, normalcy and, you know, the, the truth that's been hidden from you. Something's been kept back. I have the truth to let you free and walk in that freedom. And, and that's basically what she promotes for the most part. Again, it's but it's always a lie, like like evil is in general, and it uh, ends up destroying people in the end. Her symbol is called the Iron Crown, and this is more or less a crown of thorns that appears in a, a black uh, over a red or a white background. 
and when it comes to displays, it's cast into a two-inch diameter iron pendant for priests to wear on a red or a white cord. And as far as any priestly vestments go, there's not really anything really unique, except on the important holy days and things, they, they wear a red gown over which a black surcoat is, is donned, and the hem of the gown and surcoat is embroidered with gray, charcoal gray design, it looks like twisting thorns. And the surcoat has a hood, it's often donned for ceremonies. And basically, if you if she has a, if she has any tenets or things that she follows, again, we kind of alluded to it before, but it's the classic do what thou wilt kind of thing mentality. There, you know, there is no real law, basically, although it's kind of, you don't really make Valora mad. <laughs> but anything else after that, you're free to do as long as it fits within her her parameter. Uh, their afterlife beliefs are a little strange, the Valorans. They hold to that they basically will get to do whatever they want to do in the afterlife, actually ending up in a place of great bliss and and enjoyment in life and such. But were they able to still hold to their, their freedom and such? But in reality, Valora is really just using them. And as soon as they get there, as soon as they die and end up in the abyss, she basically just turns them into slaves. And even worse, she begins to torture them and other things that uh, I don't want to get too into right now because they'll tie into some other future stories. But yeah, they find out the reality of what was going on. She was just using them, not only to get more power and access into the world, but now she's using them in the afterlife and doing experiments and other nasty things with them to keep and maintain and even get more power in the abyss. So that's basically the extent of the cult, the Valorans. Obviously, given their nature and their aspects, they're not something that people really want to have in their, <laughs> in their towns and communities. And so they strive to really be vigilant in trying to take them down or hinder them or destroy them or uproot them in general. So they're not readily well received. And because of that, they're very cultic in nature. There's no real established temples or places of worship for them to get involved or, or find followers in general. And let's just kind of turn the page into what Valora looks like in general. Since we talked about her religion in brief, she, like like most of the uh, the gods, she has a certain... A heightened size element to her, but she has kind of a unique aspect again because she's a greater god spawn, which has stayed with her in her afterlife form. But she's 13 feet tall, she has gray eyes, she has black hair, and olive skin. And she is basically the hair is a long, curly black. Her eyes kind of hint at the, the, the evil that's fueling her, the anger that's deep within her. She f- tends to wear and favor dark garb with silver accessories with subtle hints of serpent motifs and cruel-looking additions here and there, like the iron crown. She has like a, uses that as a brooch for her cloak and has similar-themed diamond she wears, or diamond, excuse me, uh, from time to time. She wears for ter- certain things, certain aspects. As far as how she's portrayed by people, especially those that worship her, she's often shown as a young woman, often of elven or human lineage, with pure black hair and gray eyes. And she's usually incredibly attractive as well as possessing an aura about her that is at once alluring and, and deadly. Kind of, again, that showing that beauty, beautiful side of evil, beautiful face of evil again. In most cases, she's given large bat wings, but this is kind of rare. This wingless form being more common. And again, it's, it's something what they want to emphasize. It's that beautiful face of evil. And that's kind of how she's portrayed. Again, where she's portrayed, usually it's, it's small, 
votive statuary or it is uh, little pictures they draw in books or, or scrolls they keep on their person. Some people might get a tattoo if they're really totally sold out to the belief of Valora, but in general, it's very rare you're going to find images of her you know, in the common, common marketplace of ideas, although if it's a cultic meeting area, you might find her picture of her drawn somewhere on the vicinity or shown somewhere in the vicinity just to indicate this is where you can hang out and, and worship Ballora. But I think that's all I'm going to share about her today. You get a little bit of information about what's coming. She is going to be a major player in some storylines in the future as she strikes to try and gain more power and influence in the Pantheon and just over Trollodon in general. She's kind of been a silent figure all this time again in the background, but she is now moving more rapidly into power and position and awareness on Trollodon and other places overall. And you'll find out more about that, like I said, in future stories and uh, elements and such, and, and hopefully the not too distant future. So that's it for now. Thank you for listening. I do appreciate it. And we'll see you next episode. This podcast is copyright Chad Corey. All rights reserved.